Welcome to Heart, Soul, and Mind, the podcast from Centenary United Methodist Church. I'm Dr. Glenn Kinkin, Senior Minister here at Centenary. My hope is that this podcast will give you some good news for your journey today. So if you join with me in your Bible to Matthew chapter 6, our text is going to be Matthew 6, 1 to 6, and then 16 through 18. Hear with me now the words of the Lord. Beware of practicing your righteousness before others in order to be seen by them. For then you have no reward from your Father in heaven. So whenever you give alms, do not sound a trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues or in the streets, so that they may be praised by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward. But when you give alms, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your alms may be done in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And whenever you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners so that they may be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward. But whenever you pray, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And whenever you fast, do not look somber like the hypocrites, for they mark their faces to show others that they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face, so that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. My brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Almighty and gracious Lord, we gather here on this holy ground. We gather with expectant hearts. We expect for you to speak to us, to give us a word for our week to come, for the days and the hours that flow from this hour of worship with you. So with expectant hearts, may we tune our ears so that we would clearly hear your words upon our lives and in clearly hearing those words that we might take them deep within our souls and let them be how we live this week. So that we would leave here not as hearers of your words, but as doers of your words. In your son's holy name we pray. Amen. So Susanna and I had this conversation, oh, some months or so ago, about just childhood and things that we enjoyed. And we found out that we both had a love for when we were out of school for, say, a snow day or a winter break, or if you happen to be sick, real or otherwise, that we loved to watch game shows. 
And we really both like The Price is Right. I mean, who doesn't like that show, right? I mean, The Price is Right, you know how it is, is that there's a whole audience full of contestants that are eager to get on the stage so they can come down front to bid on something like, you know, a can of beefaroni or something like that or a Cuisinart. And if you could get close to the actual retail price, Without going over, if you got closest, you got up on stage and you could win fabulous prizes. And if you want enough of those and you got the right numbers on the magic wheel, you might could get to the showcase showdown and win, yes, a new car or something like that. But what we love, what I loved about that show was just figuring out how do these people get on there? You know, when Bob Barker would come out or now Drew Carey, there's a whole audience and everybody's jumping up and down and everything. And how do they get on? Well, I did a little research. Actually, I watched a documentary on The Price is Right because I was just bored one day. Um, It was during COVID, let's be honest. I was bored. And so what happens is, is that there's a whole line of contestants that show up outside the studio hours before they open for a taping. And sure, you know, when it gets time, it's about time to let everybody in, the producers walk down this long queue of folks and they're talking to them and they're writing down their names and giving them their sticker and all of this. And they're sizing up who's there, they're looking for contestants. And so the key to be a contestant is to stand out. So invariably, if you looked in the TV audience and you saw that there was, say, a small platoon of Marines, you knew that one of those Marines was going to get to come down front and try to bid. And so as this documentary was going on, there was this one character who loved The Price is Right. He ended up being on 36, I mean, not being on it, but he attended 36 tapings over his lifetime. But he one time, when he really wanted to get on there, he wore a shirt that says, I'm here for a kiss from Holly. Now, Holly was one of the models that showed this. And so, of course, as you can imagine, as he had this shirt made up, as the producers come by, they're like, of course we're going to pick you because you stand out. See, this idea of standing out was how he got noticed and notoriety so that he could appear. And I was thinking about that. This is, it's a lot like branding, if you will. See, in the marketing world, branding is about standing out. It's about being known and recognized for who you are or for your product. And so if you think about this, there's big business in branding and trademark infringement and trademark law. So for example, if I told you that I have a beverage in an hourglass-shaped bottle, it's a Coke. Why? Because Coca-Cola has trademarked the hourglass-shaped bottle. Or if you think about it, how it is, and you so corporate logos, we're going to see a lot of those tonight on the Super Bowl. But there's also personal brands. So you think to the movie Legally Blonde, the character Elle Woods, what was her signature color? Pink, thank you. I knew y'all would know. Her color was pink. And so if you saw pink coming, you knew it was Elle. Or if you got the singer Enrique Iglesias, he's always wearing a ball cap. It was his signature thing. Or the singer Lord, that she had this idea that for a while in her career, dark lipstick. And so if you saw the singer with dark lipstick, you knew immediately who it was. I've got a clergy colleague that at one point in his life, he had someone that was known that would make him shirts. So he loved to wear the clergy collar. And I'm not talking about the straight black one that looks like a Catholic priest or an Episcopal priest or even a Lutheran every once in a while. No, his were Hawaiian shirts, SpongeBob SquarePants. But you would see him coming and you knew this was his brand. You knew who it was. Even from a distance, you could see the shirt and you're like, oh, here he comes. Standing out is how you gain attention. And it works great in marketing, and it's great in our professional lives, it's great in putting a product in front of things, 
but it becomes a slippery slope when we start to think about standing out and how we practice our faith. So where we find ourselves in today's text, Jesus has just spent a long section teaching the 12 how to have a better relationship with the world and a better relationship with other human beings. This idea of taking the law and going a step further, those, those five but I says, those extensions. And so now what he's doing is he's turning the, uh, the spotlight not on how we relate to each other, but how we relate to God. See, in this passage that I just read, Jesus is teaching the 12 and us how that we can go deeper and build a stronger relationship on a good, solid, well-meaning foundation with God who loves us most. But really to understand what he's driving at, we've kind of got to wind the clock back to go earlier in the Sermon on the Mount. It was about Matthew 5.20. Remember, Jesus said, unless your righteousness, that's, that is your right living, your practice of faith, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. So he was telling that story and using this with those extensions, those but I says, but now he's driving this into how we practice our faith, how we communicate with God, how we show and build that relationship. He wants us to be really clear that we're not self-righteous. We can't be self-righteous about it, but we also can't just go through the motions. So we can't get up in the morning and go, well, I've prayed, check. I've given to the poor, check. I've fasted, check. And oh good, I'm great. I'm, God and I, are, we're like this. No, what he really wants us to do is to get really focused on how we build this relationship. It's how we practice our piety, those things that draw us closer to God. So he's looking at how we give to support the poor, almsgiving, how we pray, how we fast, how we do those things to strengthen each other. And what Jesus is challenging us to do as we think about this idea of practicing piety is he thinks about who is the audience what is your motivation? I mean, really, Jesus is meddling in how we practice our faith. And the construct that he uses in his teaching, he talks about the object, and he gives a negative example and why it's negative, and then says, let me tell you a better way. So what better way for him to get in this? He jumps right into almsgiving, this whole idea of charitable giving to the poor. Now, what we know about Jesus, and sometimes we're really uncomfortable with, is that Jesus talks about money and charitable giving and giving to the poor more than he talks about judging each other. He talks about money a lot in the gospel. So what happens is he does this, and we really don't want to admit this because we would rather turn everybody's eyes on what everyone else is doing and sit quietly on our wallets and not make eye contact with Jesus, but he goes straight at us, doesn't he? So this idea about giving to the poor, in their culture, remember the Deuteronomic law says there will always be poor people because there's always going to be unfortunate things that happen in life. And so it was a part of the law, part of the expectation, part of the responsibility of one who follows God to care for the poor, to look out for them. So what he says, he says, don't give like the hypocrites who are flashy so that others see all that they do and how much that they give, and instead give anonymously. In those days, just as it is now, the rich have more wealth to give dollar-wise 
but the expectation is proportionate giving. But it's how we give that what matters most. So if we remember the, the parable of the widow's mite, remember Jesus is sitting in the back and he and the gang and they're watching the people come forward and the rich come forward and they're dropping their big, heavy gold coins in the plate so that everyone sees how many they give. And then the widow just slides in on the side and she puts two copper coins, low dollar amounts, in the plate. And Jesus asked, who gave the most? It wasn't about the flash and the bang for Jesus. It was about the heart. And that's what he's getting at here, this whole idea of giving about charity. So we think about this. There are about eight different ways that we can give as human beings, that we can give to support those around us. The first is, is this idea of unwilling giving. It's like the guilt trip gift. Well, everybody else is doing it. I guess I should give something too. Are you really invested? No. Or maybe there's this idea of willing, but really what you give is inadequate. So in a little bit, the collection plate's going to pass along. And, you know, you look in your wallet, and there's a one, there's a five, there's a two, there's a 10, there's a 20. And you go, ah, we'll put the one in the plate. You're giving willingly, but you're really not invested even in that gift. Or then there's giving after having been asked. And one of the challenges here with what we know about their culture is that the poor always with us. Why do we have to be asked to give to support the poor? Why do we have to be asked to give to support the church? A colleague of mine was telling me a story that, you know, at the end of their year, they ran a, a shortfall. They received a little bit less money than they needed for ministry. And so as they shared this with the church, folks in the church were upset. They said, why didn't you tell us we would have given more? And we sort of chuckled. I said, you do announce the offering every week, right? And he says, of course we do. There's our chance to give. But we don't have to wait to be asked, why aren't we giving just generously? That's what God is challenging us to do here. But then there's yet another one, this idea of giving anonymously, but even the benefactor knows who's giving. But the next step in that is the one that gives to benefit someone and that one that's benefited doesn't know. So the story about this is a couple of years ago in, in one of my churches, there was a family that had lost a job and they were struggling to make ends meet. And their neighbor, their friend knew this and had tried six different ways to Sunday to help them out. And they were really trying to thread delicately to be their friend and to help them without wounding their pride. So this friend came to me and said, you know about such and such a family? And I said, yes. And they said, I want to give you this envelope. I want to help them financially. It's nothing but cash, but they can't know it's from me because I want to maintain their dignity and their relationship. When you see them before they come into church, would you just give this to them and tell them it's from someone who loves them? So I took it a step further, knowing this person wanted to be, a, wanted to be completely anonymous, and I took the check or took the, the envelope and I said, someone gave me this note, said I'd see you this morning, and I was supposed to pass it to you. And then I walked off. See, the person that gave that money knew that there was a need, but it wasn't about them that was giving. It was about the need. Then there is what Jesus is really getting at, this idea that the left hand doesn't know the right hand. This idea that we should give to help whomever has need, whether we know them or not. And the final step of this idea of charitable giving, the kind that Jesus is talking about, is where we give to help people. We teach them in a way that helps them survive and sustain their lives. It's this idea of, of sustainable giving. We help them 
learn how to, instead of giving them a fish, we help them to learn how to fish so that they can eat all their lives. It's helping restore their dignity. See, Jesus is challenging us in this text, this idea of twofold with almsgiving. One is giving to honor and to deepen the relationship with God, but two, to really check our motivation. Is it so that people can say, oh, look how generous you are, or was it to just give? What's our motivation? The other part that Jesus is challenging us to think about, my friends, is that we are all part of a community. Today, we know people in need, but tomorrow, that might be us. So when we have a genuine heart and we give with generosity and we give with the idea of helping those no matter what, God sees what's in our heart and we will receive the reward later. That's what matters most. But just as we move from this idea of giving, Jesus begins to address prayer. He says, don't pray like the hypocrites who stand in the synagogues and on the street corners and go on and on and on and on so the people hear them. No, he's not talking about corporate prayer, not what Susanna just led us through, not when we pray the Lord's Prayer together, but people that are really trying to turn the spotlight on them and not on the conversation. Because that's what prayer is. It's a conversation between us and God. So when we make it about us that people are watching us, that's when we fall into the trap that Jesus is talking about. So every so often, we know this pops up in American culture, there's this, always this trope where it's a, it's a war on prayer, and it usually starts with some conversation about the separation of church and state, and specifically around prayer in schools. And let me just be honest. Friends, as long as there are tests, there will be prayer in schools. And I'm living proof that God answers prayers because if you knew my German grades at the start of my third semester of college, you would know that prayers are answered. Now, what we're really talking about here is this idea of why do we pray? What is our motivation? How are we praying? Are we praying to be caught on TV so that people see, oh, look. If we pray so that we can tell the world, look, I'm showing you my faith, or look, I'm standing up for what is right, or oh, look, I'm defending faith practices. If there's too many I statements in that, guess what? We have fallen into the trap Jesus is talking about. We have received our award that people notice us. But what Jesus says, it's better for us to work on our relationship with God, to pray to God directly and just let the world just fade in the background because it's not about the world watching us, it's about us talking to God. And that when we're focused on that relationship and that conversation, then we receive our reward. And then finally, what grows out of prayer is this idea of fasting. So we know that fasting is this act of penitence where we give up things, whether it's eating or other stuff that we do at Lent. We give it up so that we realize the sustenance that we receive from God, the blessings that we have received. And by giving it up, we are focused on really how much God cares for us. So what Jesus says is that when you fast, don't look somber like the hypocrites, marking your face and walking around through this poor-as-me attitude where everybody knows that you're doing something. Instead, wash your face and go out life as normal. 
I think about this in a couple of days. We're going to, in 12, 10 days actually, we're going to start the season of Lent. And sometime before Lent, uh, you know, we'll start conversations like, what are you giving up for Lent? Now, I'm asking you all this when I talk to people because I'm just curious what people are doing. There's no judgment there. I'm curious. Where it gets in that slippery slope and where Jesus is talking about is when you decide that you're going to give up something, like maybe you're going to fast truly, not eat on Wednesdays. And someone invites you to go out to lunch and say, hey, do you want to go to lunch with me on Wednesday? And they go, oh, no, I can't go to lunch with you on Wednesday because I'm fasting. Oh, woe is me. When you get to that, that's what Jesus is talking about. Instead, what Jesus says is just say, you know, I'd love to go to lunch with you. I can't do Wednesday. Is Thursday available? They don't need to know what you're doing because it's about your relationship with God. So there are some things that we could do during the season of Lent, some things that we could fast from. If we want to do food, think about this. What if we fasted from hurting words and focused on kindness? Or what if we fasted from sadness and looked at gratitude? We gave up anger and practiced patience. We let worry go by the wayside and we trusted God. What if we let complaints become a thing of the past? Instead, we focused on simplicity and celebrated the goodness that we saw around us. What if we let the pressures of life go and we spent more time in prayer? We let go of bitterness and we lifted up joy. We let selfishness fall by the wayside and shared compassion with each other. We let go of grudges and we sought reconciliation. What if we used less words and listened more? See, we can fast from those things and practice these others, and we can make a difference in the world without telling the world what we're doing just by doing it. See, when we fast, when we give up those things that help us focus on our relationship with God, then we know what's happening between us and God, and God sees what's happening in secret, and we receive our reward. So every week when we gather here for worship, one of the things that I'm really big, and y'all know this over five years, is this idea of being hearers, not just hearers of the word, but doers of the word. Now there's a slippery slope there because this idea of being doers, for me, is to go out into the world and to share what we learn in here and to share the gospel in the world around us. To change the world around us. But we're not doing it so that people look at us and go, you get a gold star, you get a gold star, you get a gold star. But we're doing it because the world desperately needs the love of God. And the trick for us is that we know the world is watching us, but what if we did it from the humility of our heart? That we're focused on our relationship with God and that's why we're doing the things that we do. And if we have to be, we have to be honest with ourselves though. We have to be brutally honest. We have to check our motivations to make sure that we're not doing this. And people go, oh my gosh, you're such a great person. But instead that we're doing this because this is who we're called to be. So the question for us is, am I living my faith? Am I practicing these works of mercy, these good deeds for others? Am I practicing acts of piety, these things that draw me closer to God? Am I doing it for the right reasons to grow closer to God and to be better the person that God wants me to be? Or am I doing it because I want the world to see me? Because if I'm doing it that, then I might as well be on the prices right and I'm the next contestant up. But if I'm doing it to grow closer to God, if we're trying to be the person that God wants us to be and to live the way God wants us to be, 
then we will receive our reward. And it looks something like this. We hear it later in the gospel where at the end of it all, the Lord meets us and says, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into your master's happiness. And we already know what that feels like because it's been burning in our hearts throughout our lives by the way that we have practiced our faith, even out in public. Not to be seen by others, but to just grow closer to God ourselves. Friends, that's what we're called to do and who we're called to be. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening to Heart, Soul, and Mind, the podcast for Centenary United Methodist Church. We hope that you will consider joining us for worship on Sunday mornings at 9 or 11 a.m. Blessings. Blessings.